Hi, everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where we think the weather is having a bit of an identity crisis, and we would prefer Mother Nature pick something and stick with it. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, general manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 10 a.m. right after Charlie and right before Nachum's live lunch, as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, I am joined, get that mic ready, I'm joined by my handy-dandy partner today, ZK. What's up, ZK? Hey, Miriam. How's it going? I am doing well. Thanks so much for joining me here this morning, by the way. Anytime. No, it's not anytime. It's like a Yotam and Hakal kind of a thing. <laughs> but um, at least you and I are not on a plane, not fighting a bird strike, no lightning strikes, no snow in terms of, you know, flights being delayed. Been a lot of interesting things happening over the last uh, month or so. Yeah, it's been yeah. a hoot and a holler. <laughs> it's been a hoot and a holler, but thank God we are rolling with the punches. If you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your crazy day to tune in. And if you're a returning listener, thanks as always for making us part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what Shari Man does. Friend me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email. Miriam at Nahum Siegel. I will not respond to you during the show. I am not being rude. I am being honest, but I will make sure to get back to you afterwards. Please also follow us on Twitter, Nahum Siegel Net, all one word, and Miriam L. Wallach, all one word. By the way, ZK, um, a shout out also to um, Jose Bautista, who is a Major League Baseball player who is now following me on Twitter. Yes, I'm not kidding. He is following me on Twitter. That was crazy fun. Anyway, today is a packed show, folks. We have a lot to do. We have a lot of people to talk about. And actually, our first guest is already on um, on hold. So I'm actually going to get to Danielle now because I don't want to keep her waiting. I do think that that's in bad form. We will do the fortune cookie and we will do our um, national holidays for the day after we speak to Danielle Goldstein. Danielle Goldstein is an award-winning Grand Prix show jumper. And by the way, when I say Grand Prix, I don't mean Pontiac. I mean as in horses. She is from West Palm Beach, Florida. She made Aliyah in 2011, 2011, in order to have the privilege of riding for Israel in an all-international show jumping competition. She is the founding member of the Israeli equestrian team, and she met with the Israeli Olympic Committee to discuss the formation of a team for the 2016 Olympic Games for which she received their blessing. Hello, Danielle. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I am well. Thank you so much for joining me on the air. This is a fantastic story um, on so many levels. Number one, I, you know, <laughs> I can't say I ever thought that there were any professional Jewish um, show jumper. I don't even know what the right term is. So, show jumper, yeah, that's a good term. Okay, good. Show jumpers. Um, of course, when I think of show jumping, it's like hurdles and like jumping over a puddle. But you're actually, you're a professional equestrian. I am. I am absolutely a professional equestrian. And there's actually many of us. <laughs> I'm not alone. Really? Yeah, there are really a lot all over the world. That That's unbelievable. So you live where in Israel? I actually live in West Palm Beach, Florida. I don't actually live oh, in Israel. Oh, you don't, but you would be representing Israel. That's the goal. Exactly. And I spend a good month and a half there every year. I go as often as I can, and I you know, I, I do a lot of stuff while I'm over there, and I work, and I give clinics. And so I, I'm, I'm over there a lot, but I actually am based in West Palm Beach, Florida. That's incredible. So let's start from the beginning. You started show jumping when? Oh, man, when I was about eight years old. And it's just something you picked up. I mean, everyone else is playing hopscotch, and you decided to get on a horse. <laughs> yeah, kind of. You know, I was—I uh, actually grew up in New York City, and I was out in Long Island one weekend as a kid, and I said, "I love horses. I'll go take a riding lesson. Why not?" And I was hooked immediately. Wow, that's unbelievable. And you had no like early childhood fears about literally getting on a horse. No, no. If anything, I think my parents were trying to keep me off the horse, and all I wanted to do was ride. So then you started at eight. Yeah, I started riding at eight, and uh, I've really sort of never stopped. I got into competitions almost immediately, and, uh, you know, I took a little bit of a hiatus when I was in college because I really wanted to focus on school and sort of have that normal experience, but uh, I've been showing and competing since I was a kid. So explain to everyone what it means. I mean, in terms of showing here, you know, when I say somebody is showing, it's it's a pregnancy related thing. So <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's give a little bit of a tutorial on the on the verbiage. Okay, 
so we say showing, but technically it just is another word for competing. Um, they call them horse shows, but a better term for them would be horse competitions or tournaments. Um, basically, we there's a set course of jumps that the course designer builds. It's at a certain height. We have to follow that specific uh, route in the arena. And uh, the idea is that you stay within a time allowed that they set. And every time you knock a jump over, it's a four-fault penalty. And uh, the hope is to go as fast as you can without knocking anything over. And you have a favorite horse? You have one particular horse you ride? Oh, no, I have a few that I ride. Um, you know, all the horses sort of have different you have to remember that the horses are the athletes. So Oh, that's uh, a know, good that's a really athletes. good point. Athletes. Okay. Yeah, we're both athletes. But the horses we consider the horses really the primary athletes. And uh, you know, some horses have more ability than others and so we have different horses for different types of competitions, different heights or different um, you know, levels that they can jump. And what do, co- I do I have a favorite? No, not. I mean, I, I like all of them for different reasons. That they're not listening, by the way. It's not like you know when <laughs> kids are listening to the show, you don't want to say who your favorite is because, of course, parents <laughs> don't have favorites. I promise the horses are not listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose I have one at the moment that I just recently acquired, and uh, her name is Charisma. And I like her a lot. Hope we have high hopes for her. Why does she jump differently, or how? If you would have to explain it to me as a Total novice. I know nothing before this conversation and what I read. But how would how how is riding her differently different than riding of the other horses? I think the best way to describe it is that she probably has the most athletic ability of the rest of them. She really is able to jump the highest and really has a natural tendency to not want to knock over the jump. So she's the most enjoyable to ride because. She tends to be the most successful, plus she's capable of really jumping at the very, very top level of the sport. She is not a clumsy horse. No, exactly. That is a perfect way to put it. There is something, and and in general, I think horses, as do many people, are just absolutely beautiful animals. So there's something very, there's she has a gracefulness or an agility that the other ones don't have. Exactly. She has a real athleticism. I mean, the best way to put it is that she's a true, like, born athlete. That's really interesting. And it's a, it's a very, it's a very cool point. You know, when you think of the movies that are out there and that have been out there in terms of being a jockey and, and, and racing, et cetera, the focus is always on the jockey and what they yeah. have to do in terms of weight and, t- and training, et cetera. But the fact that you're mentioning that both of you are athletes is really a different perspective. Yeah. You know, and it's really, to be honest, the truth when we, we sort of have a joke in the industry, we say the horses are 70%. You know, they're the ones that really, you know, I mean, the rider, the, look, the horses would be sitting around eating grass if it were for us. So the rider, obviously, <laughs> and the, as the pilot, has a very important job. But when it comes to the natural ability and if the horse can get it done, it, it, it's the horse. You know, it's their athleticism that counts the most. This is going to be what, what may seem a completely crazy question, but do you take did you take a horse to Israel with you when you first started organizing the team? No, actually. I haven't actually taken any of my own to Israel. A little bit because there's some, like, a lot of red tape regarding the quarantine issues. It's mm. a mess a little bit. But uh, I've ridden plenty of horses over there, and I am hoping to get around that red tape this year and bring one of mine to the national championship. Well, you know, May, I think. Uh, there, when you have to fill out that form on El Al about what yeah. you're bringing overseas, <laughs> putting a horse down there is probably a whole different level of crazy. Slightly, slightly different. Slightly. I guess that's what they mean. Why do you have any livestock? But that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole different ball game. So, yeah. or a whole different sport. So, um, again, we're speaking to Danielle Goldstein. She is the founding member of the Israeli equestrian team. They have high hopes for the 2016. Olympic Games. I know you've assembled a show jumping dream team. It's the first ever uh, Olympic caliber equestrian team out of Israel. Tell me what that means. So basically what that means is we've sort of put out a, a call to anyone in, you know, anyone in Israel and anyone sort of outside of Israel in the Jewish community that, you know, as you know, if you're Jewish, you're entitled to Israeli citizenship. So we sort of put out this call to riders and say, look, you know, we're trying to put together this team, and, and we have been able to put together a team. And, you know, we're still even asking more riders to come, and we, we're just, the idea is that we're getting together this, this 
Jewish team that's uh, going to be able to compete at the highest level. And you, and by the way, for those people who are wondering where the 2016 Olympics are, they're in Rio. They are. That's pretty exciting. Would you yes. would you be training in Israel then to fly to Rio? It seems like a little bit of a strange commute for somebody who lives in West Palm Beach. <laughs> Basically, in Israel at the moment, which is part of what the entire, you know, the team and what we've really put together is not just a team, but an actual, a, a large nonprofit organization to help actually build the entire industry in Israel. So at the moment, the equestrian industry in Israel is really just developing, and there aren't very many, if any, international competitions. So at the moment, a lot of the major riders that are on the team sort of have their own training places, whether it's in the U.S. or Europe or, or sort of South America and different places, and we'll all sort of meet up for the major competitions. So we probably wouldn't be in Israel training although we would probably be training as a team, but, but in, in some other headquarters. Got it. Maybe in the U.S., maybe in Europe, you know, depending on where we end up meeting. But the problem is in Israel at the moment, there aren't, there aren't any international competitions. It's very hard to base out of there and train. Are they, how many people are on your team? How many riders? We need four and uh, with a fifth as an alternate. At the moment, we have more than that. We have more, so we actually haven't decided who's going to actually go to the Olympics. But uh, we have more than enough needed for the team. Wow, that's incredible. What kind of background do these other members of the team have? I mean, you told us you started at eight. Everyone has a similar story? Similar, yeah. Some have started from when they were one or two and, uh, you know, when their parents put them on a horse. Some got into it later in life. It's kind of all different walks of life, actually, and from all over the world. I mean, we have some from South America. We have some from France. Some from, I mean, there's actually a couple people from Israel, of course. Um, a few from America. Really, we're like all over the place and all from kind of different backgrounds. It sounds like a true Israeli story. People, it is. It really is. Yeah. How many horse jokes do you get a week, by the way? <laughs> we get plenty. <laughs> I'm sure. That's why, I, by the way, out of deference to that, I haven't made one. I just want to point <laughs> that out. And Ellie Klein, who I'm sure is listening to this interview, you better be impressed that I haven't made one horse joke yet. <laughs> I want to make sure that everyone knows about the contest uh, that's going on. Yes. Danielle, This you got to tell me more about this contest. It's called Blaze of Glory Design Contest. It was featured in Times of Israel as like an Israeli project runway. Yes, exactly. And the, so basically the idea is we want to promote this sport and we want to promote this team going to the Olympics. And we need a proper uh, a competition jacket. So instead of having, you know, someone who's already in the industry creating one, we decided to open it up as a contest in Israel to the design schools and to anyone, actually, who wants to design our competition blazer. I mean, one of the things about our sport is that it is rather traditional, but it's trying to sort of modernize. So one of the things that uh, we're hoping to do is have some young designer come up with a great patriotic take on our competition jacket with modern materials and, a, and an interesting design, you know, so that we can really compete with a brand new, exciting jacket. That's, that, that sounds incredible. And the concept is great. I, I don't know that people really appreciate that in this, in this arena, it, what you are wearing really makes a difference. Absolutely. It really does. Tell me about the tell me about the usual getup. I mean, you do explain that, as you just said, this is a traditional kind of sport. But what is a a rider? Do you call yourself a jockey? Is that the right term? No, we we call ourselves riders. Okay. Is, okay, got it. So, um, your a rider usually wears what? Usually, we have some type of breeches, which are a, a tight pants that has like a knee patch for a grip on the saddle. Oh, that's what that's um, for. Okay, got it. Yeah, that's what that's for. It's for grip on the saddle. We wear usually leather boots that go up to our knee, and that's also for protection of our lower leg against the stirrup leather and the horse's body. Um, and then we wear some type of, you know, nowadays we're wearing a lot more of that the wicking material and sort of the sport shirts. And so we have some type of uh, collared shirt. And then a blazer. And in the past, it was the blazer was always made out of wool. And now we're moving into much more sort of sport-oriented materials that you can put in the washing machine and that are thin and flexible and have you know have a lot of room for movement. Now you guys so aren't you guys aren't going to make the same mistake that the American Olympic teams, the U.S. Olympic teams, keep making, which is having their uniforms made in China. 
I hope not. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, that is that a is bit of that's a faux pas. That is a yeah, faux pas. Exactly. On, on no, we'd love we'd love for everything to be Israeli made, or you know, we're trying to get you know the entire Jewish community involved with this. So anyone that can make the jacket or design it, I mean, that's what we're going for. It is a phenomenal competition. It's also very exciting. It is put out by Team Israel. Team stands for the Equine Athletics Mission Israel www.team-israel.org. Uh, it is a nonprofit organization. It's dedicated to positively impacting Israeli society and garnering, garnering national pride and international respect for the state of Israel through the development of a robust equestrian culture. That is a phenomenal statement, by the way. Um, it really speaks to uh, the pride in the state and being able to, you know, for lack of a better word, strut our stuff on so many different levels. Yeah, I mean, that, the hope is that, you know, the, 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 the unifying nature of competitive sport is so powerful. Right. That we're hoping that, you know, this organization is not just going to help the equestrians, but help all of Israel. I mean, that's really the hope. There is also an official Team Israel Facebook page. General public can have a chance to vote on their favorite designs. All designs, by the way, are due January 26th. The winner receives a $1,000 cash prize full name recognition for as long as Team Israel wears the design, and an official Team Israel blazer. How do people um, register their designs? You can go directly to the Facebook page, and uh, there's a link to uh, sign up right there. Do you have to be a professional designer to be this person? Absolutely not. Anyone is welcome to submit a design. It's pretty incredible that you're just opening this up. How many um, – I know that the uh, the accepted submissions just began January 2nd, but have you gotten submissions? Yes, absolutely. We have a bunch already. Anything anything exciting? Oh, I can't disclose. Oh! <laughs> I thought we were going to get yeah, a sneak so preview. I could say yes. So far, we really like what's come through. And here's my next question. Are the jack – are the, the blazers – sorry, calling them jackets would be, you know – Disrespectful. Yeah, eh, whatever. The schmatas. <laughs> Let's call them. <laughs> are they all navy and white? No, absolutely not. They are welcome to be any color. Wow, very interesting. Well, I can't wait to see what the design is, and I can't wait to continue to hear more of your story. Danielle Goldstein is the founding member of the Israeli Equestrian Team. Um, we wish you complete Hatzlacha, and I hope that oh, over the next, you. please God, two years, we can continue to watch your journey. And um, shoot, what's the horse's name? Charisma. Right, charisma. Right. We hope to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that horse. Um, I. <laughs> we hope to continue to watch your journey and please God watch you um, represent Israel very proudly in the 2016 Olympics. Thank you so much. Absolutely, my pleasure. Again, anybody who wants to submit a um, a to submit a design for the Blaze of Glory design contest, where you could in, submit your design for the blazers that the Israeli equestrian team would wear at the Olympics in 2016. You can go to their Facebook page. You can also check them out. Again, they are at www.team-israel.org. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks again. Continued Thanks. Hatzlacha. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nahum Siegel Network. As promised, I want to do the fortune cookie because we are out of order, but we are not out of time. Right, ZK? You like the way I did that? Uh-huh. Humor me. Just humor me. Sure, Miriam. I like the way you did that. I love there the way you did that. There we go. Excellent. Okay. Oh, let me just adjust my mic. Yeah, I'll adjust your mic a second. One second. All right. Fortune cookie. Oh, my God. If it has something to do with horses, that's going to be crazy cool. Okay, hold on. Um, When things go wrong, don't go with them. Well, I could use that this week. <laughs> that, it has, by the way, nothing to do with the horses. Nothing to do with the horses. The horses are doing great. We also got to do our national holidays. First of all, it's National Soccer Coaches of America Week. I don't know any soccer coaches, but I'm sure they're great. And ZK, it's Appreciate a Dragon Day. Yes, Appreciate a Dragon Day. That's some type of Chinese thing? I don't know. I don't know. Asian, by the way. Asian. But yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. We could go take a walk down Grand Street because a half a mile of here seems, from here it seems like a totally different world away. I don't know how to appreciate a dragon, but um, I don't know. There's got to be something out there. It's also Get to Know Your Customers Day, and it's Nothing Day. Yep, today is also official Nothing Day. Religious Freedom Day. I wish it was. <laughs> it is Religious Freedom Day, which um, brings us to our next interview. And I cannot, obviously, go without mentioning that it is Tu B'Shvat, 
which makes ranking on the national holidays list. So I'm happy to see that. But speaking of Religious Freedom Day, we have a returning guest to That's Life, um, Rabbi Gil Pearl, who is the dean of the Margolin Hebrew Academy Feinstein Yeshiva of the South in Memphis, Tennessee. The last time we had Rabbi Pearl on was a slightly different story, though this is a continuation of the story. Rabbi Pearl, how are you? I'm well. How are you, ma'am? Good. Thank God. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, the last time I had you on was this crazy story you had posted on Facebook where you and a number of students had gone for uh, your school Shabbaton only to wake up Shabbos morning to find that the um, a, a number of religious articles that you had brought with you for Shabbos had been defaced overnight. Right. And when we spoke... We were limited by your ability to freely talk about the case because the case was pending and you were a primary witness, so to speak. That's correct. Yes. And now the the uh, security guard um, from Jackson, Tennessee, who defaced the tower, was sentenced to four years. This actually came out at the end, end of December. Um, and you spoke at that trial. I did. It was actually a sentencing hearing. He, he had pleaded guilty. This was a sentencing hearing to see whether he would get, you know, somewhere closer to the minimum sentence, which was a two-year sentence, or the maximum sentence, which was four. And this security guard was 25 years old. He was. Father of two two little kids, too. And what did he say at the hearing? Did he yeah, speak on his own he, behalf? No, he didn't testify at all. Um, they called his wife. She testified, and uh, a counselor that he had, a you know, a mental health professional that he had been seeing. Those were the two witnesses that they brought. And it did not sway the judge, and he still received what the maximum sentence was. He did. Yeah, they, they tried to make two arguments. They they tried to argue that um, he has something called disassociative amnesia, um, in which he he blanks out and uh, and lands up doing things that he can't remember doing. Um, and wanted to suggest that that was part of what took place that night. And you know, they also tried to argue that he was otherwise an upstanding citizen and a father and a um, you know a good husband. And uh, for the, you know on those accounts, one you know, we're, we're pleading with a judge for a lighter sentence. But neither of them, neither of them held up. And it's curious to me if he's already um, pleading, if he already you know accepted the guilty plea why he wouldn't try and plea on his own behalf, and, and, and uh, especially at the sentencing, sentencing hearing, or even extend an apology. But I guess that also speaks to the nature of the real behavior. I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the central pieces in the, the prosecution's case was his uh, Facebook page and, and MySpace page, which just had anti-Semitic, anti-religious, um, sentiment written all over it. So I, I was not—I wasn't expecting an apology. That's the truth. Was there? I'm—I'm I'm not mistaken that there was one article, there was one report saying that they were "quote unquote" Satan worshippers, whatever yeah. that means. <laughs> that's, that's right. They—they they associate with something called uh, um, the, they call themselves Satanists. Um, but but the church, the, the Satanist church, is actually—they're not Satan worshippers. Um, the Church of Satan is something, you know, and I've had to look into this as a result of these wonderful occurrences, but it's, they're a group of loosely organized people who were pretty much anti-established religion. That, that's probably, that's the best, probably the best way of describing them. They're very much into, into humanism and, and, and what human beings can do and, and very much against any kind of faith-based organization of any sort. I'd bet that you never in a million years thought you would know this much about Satanism than you do right now. That is absolutely true. <laughs> and all I wish of, I didn't. And all, I imagine that. In all of your studies, this did not come across your way. Uh, Rabbi Gil Pearl is the dean. Can I just call it the Yeshiva of the South? Is that all right? Sure. There we go. <laughs> the Yeshiva yeah. of the South in Memphis, Tennessee, bringing us up to date on the story that we heard um, a little while ago. There's also, I, I was going to ask you, and I don't remember what the answer to this question was, Were you, you were not the person who found it that morning, correct? Uh, I, I am. I, the, my... Our high school principal, Oriola Lebetsky, was actually the first one to find anything. We were both up before the rest of our kids because we had little kids with us on mm-hmm. the Shabbaton. Right. We'd gotten into the room to get breakfast for our, our, our littler ones. 
Uh, my little ones got up before his little ones, so I'd already been in the room. I didn't really see much. Um, he's the one who first found wow. a, a scribbled note by you know in the, in the corner where our kids had left their musical equipments for after Shabbos. Right. Um, he brought me the note. I went back in to look at where it was found, and then found that all of the chords to our musical stuff was was cut, and that was writing on the drum. And eventually, made my way over to the other half of the room where we had been set up as a shul. And you know, basically, he he had looked for he was looking for the um, effect. You know, where you didn't walk into the room and notice anything. I mean, the the, the Sefer Torah, which he had defaced on the cloth itself. Right. Had been you know, had the gartel put back on, had the um, you know, had the parochas put back on, and was wrapped in the in a talus the same way we had left it. So it was the same way with everything he had done. He had kind of tucked away these notes so that we would open a you know open a, right. a, a sitter and find messages inside of it. We so could... it took me some time to sort of discover to walk through the whole area and discover every little um, you know note that he had left for us. You and I couldn't talk about this before, but can I ask you what he wrote in the Sefer Torah? Um, yes. You can prefer not to answer it. I respect that wholeheartedly. No, no, I can, I, I can tell you. Just, I mean, some of the words are not things I would say on air. I oh, wow, I didn't realize that we were going that f- Okay, wow, um, okay. But uh, I can tell you, he, he had he had a limited vocabulary that he used. Um, the, the language was... Um, a lot about Gentiles winning and Jews losing. I didn't. I, I guess I was wondering, and I should have clarified this: whether it was a particular symbol that he had placed in. No, it was ah. all. It was all writing. Okay. Um, uh, you know, and a lot of expletives about Jews. Mm. Um, uh, he liked using the uh, the K word ah. for uh, for Jews. Right. Got it. Um, but the, the 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 theme was. That we are going to, we're, we're, we're in some sort of competition and we're going to, we're losing. We're, we're weak. We're going to lose. Um, Satan's going to win. Um, he did mention Satan several times. He, he wrote, um, you know, our, our, the parochas of our Sefer Torah has a white sort of embroidered, um, uh, Aseris Adibros in it, on mm. it. And in between each of the Aseris Adibros, he wrote, you know, Satan wins. Oh, um, Jews lose. Jews are weak. <laughs> You know, f the Jews, that kind of thing. Is the um, were, were, were both the parochas and the Sefer Torah returned to you? I know that not they yet. still not. not. Yet. Um, last we were told is that uh, they hold it in custody until 30 days after the sentencing, because you know, there's a 30-day appeals period. We, the truth of the matter is, the legal proceedings actually aren't completely over. The, the federal sentencing hasn't happened yet. But uh, we're hoping that we are actually going to get it back before the federal sentencing happens in March. Because the federal, because this falls within the federal hate crimes. Exactly. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that that was still pending. Um, yeah. I want to ask you a question, and again, you can choose not to answer this, but do you receive any closure from all of this? Do your students receive closure now that this man is behind jail, behind bars? Um, I think the students in the community definitely feel some. Um, it'll be interesting because we're actually taking our boys back to the same hotel. Oh, wow. Shabbaton in uh, two weeks. Um, <clears throat> so it'll be interesting to see what kind of emotions that, that brings, you know, both in them and in us. Um, for me, I, I have to say that the, that the sentencing itself was, was more unnerving than I expected it to be. It, it was, it was a very hard to go through. And, and there were conflicting emotions. On the one hand, I think this guy was revealed to be somebody who really needs to be behind bars. Right. On the other hand, it's really hard to see a, somebody who's a father of two kids, you know, be taken away from his wife in front of you, you know, and mm. locked up. That's just not, it's not easy. I, I give you a tremendous amount of credit on numerous occasions <laughs> and in numerous fields, but honestly, I would never have been able to do it. Um, you know, and, and I guess we can say I'm a, pretty tough cookie, but I don't know um, if I would have had the strength. I, I give you a tremendous amount of credit because, um, you know, both as an individual and as a community leader and as somebody with responsibilities to the, the, his own kids and the, his students and then being able to put yourself in that position must have been um, very, very, very uh, tough is like an understatement. It's just the, the only word that grabs me right now. It's just a struggle, a personal struggle. 
So I give you a tremendous amount of credit. Um, and it's also, by the way, a very bold move, a very recuperative move, I would say, to return to the same hotel. It is. Um, you know, but uh, the kids, I think, feel strongly about it. I think that uh, it's part of the you know, part of the the way we've tried to approach all of this is that we're not running away from it. You know, and 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 this man was acting as an individual. Mm. You know, he was, and and the the city of Jackson has been incredible. I mean, uh, law enforcement there has really been been great in handling all of this, and I think it's important to them also that we don't get scared away by uh, you know by an individual. And and it was also very important, I know, to um, to the DA's office that. This does not portray the South as a place that's, right. you know, riddled with anti-Semites and that type of thing. Um, and so I, I think I think it's the right thing to do. And the community of Memphis, they, they sleep a little easier at this point? I think so. I think so. I hope so. I, I can only imagine. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, as always, Rabbi Pearl, you are welcomed on these airwaves anytime you want. I appreciate very much you coming on and, and giving us, giving your listeners our listeners, um, closure on this, some closure on this story as well, and continued strength. And I hope that the Shabbaton is not only not only goes off without a hitch, but is completely besimcha. Amen. Take Thank care. You. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network, and I told you we had a packed show. We're getting straight to our third guest. I'm not sure if I've ever had anyone on the phone, on the air, calling from the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem. So I guess there's a first for everything. Hedy Abramowitz joins us on the phone. She's an exhibiting artist. She has exhibited extensively in Israel and abroad. She is also a blogger at Times for Israel, recently writing a piece called Breaking Bread, Challah as a Sign of the Times. And, of course, anything having to do with Challah interests me, and I'm so happy that Hetty is able to join us. Hello, Hetty. Hi there. How are you? Good. I am well. Thank you. Thanks for so much for joining me. You have a fantastic resume, by the way. I love it when people leave law and do something else. Not because I'm anti-lawyer. <laughs> Not because I'm anti-lawyer. My husband's an some attorney. Of, some of us have seen the light. There you see. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Somebody once said to me um, that nobody loves the law. They just practice law. And I thought that that was... A bit of a sad statement, but I guess I don't. I don't know if that's true. When I was in law school, they said that the law was a um, jealous mistress, ah. and it was not easy leaving law. I have to say, it was a, a real confrontation uh, with myself. So um, it's uh, you, you, can, you can love it too. So I'm, I, I don't uh, cast aspersions. I really don't. What kind of law did you practice? Well, uh, in the States, I really was, um, you know, just a law student and had uh, summer jobs and so forth because um, the day after the bar exam, my then um, boyfriend and now husband, uh, we got on a plane and uh, came to Israel. So um, I didn't really practice law in the States as a professional. Um, and in Israel, we together started a small private practice, which he's continued and I have retired from. <laughs> Happily retired from, and now you are an artist. Yeah, for the last twenty-five years. Right. It's, uh, right. Early I don't retire. Very early retirement. <laughs> I don't want people to think you decided six months ago to leave law, and you've just you know been taking no, up no, pottery. No. Right. No, it's a long time. <laughs> and what kind of and what kind of your art is your specialty? I know I've seen a um, a number of your pieces online, but just so that people can get a feeling of of what your specialty is. Um, I the, the big catch phrase would be contemporary realism. I do mostly oil painting, but I also do a lot of photography, and um, I don't limit myself to one specific thing. I experiment. Um, I vary things. I try. Sometimes I try different directions uh, for a short time, and then switch to other things. So it's um, you know, and it's never a hundred percent the same, but. Um, but that's the general description. Well, I thought your website was also very exciting. It's Hedy Abramowitz with H-E-D-D-Y, not H-A-D-D-Y, HedyAbramowitz.com, where you can see a lot of um, Hedy's works. But, Hedy, I really, I, I, I was fascinated by the fact that all of a sudden we had an artist who used to be an attorney who's now writing about challah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's so unusual where I'm sitting from. But exactly. Whatever. No, but I, that's I've exactly... Met, I've met in Israel a lot of people with a lot of... Uh, surprising um, switches in their lives. So it doesn't seem so odd to me. No, I agree with you, but I thought it was exciting because you had had seen an exhibit having to do with the the different ways that challah is showcased or 
or and I don't mean literally put in a showcase, but is is takes forefront or has the forefront in Judaism, and um and you investigated it. No, actually, I was writing about my own photography that is on exhibit in the exhibit that I referred to. Oh, then I so misunderstood. I, oh, and I did a okay. little bit of further research. There's an old text that actually is a book that we own in our house uh, that shows the women's um, mitzvot. Uh, amongst which um, challah, taking challah is one of them. Right. And I uh, just tied all those threads together, and and that's what I was writing oh, about. Oh, I misunderstood. I apologize. I misunderstood. That's okay. I misunderstood, but I was fascinated by your story of finding challah in different places, whether you went to the Shuk or whether you were in the Jewish Quarter, and um, and especially about the fact that, well, while I could eat at Naman Bakery my entire life, um, there was the there's the store next to it which is um, has traditional Arab breads, and um, but your line at the bottom, which is you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy challah. Right. It's funny, you know, because I knew we were going to be speaking tonight, I walked by that store today, and I see that they are no longer under rabbinical supervision. Really? So I just want to let your readers know <laughs> that. So as as with all things, please uh, check for the uh, the uh, Tudada certificate right. wherever you are. Oh, that's and, very um, interesting. Just an aside. Right. No, that's but an yes, important. That's, that was accurate as of when I as when I wrote it and when I uh, when I photographed it. No, that is a that is a very important point. It's funny because when I uh, my kids joke and I I customarily bake challah. I try to bake it Arab Shabbos and very rarely do I bake it Thursday night. But I'm very um, while I am not the most spiritual person on the planet, I'm a very spiritual challah baker. And to me and my kids, once they smell challah. It's Shabbos. So if over some re- so if I'm making challah in the middle of the week so that I can freeze it ahead of time, there's a whole bunch of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. I think I think part of the baking of challah, which I also don't do as often as I would like, um, is the atmosphere that it brings to the home as the house transitions from the regular workday to the special Shabbat day. I agree. Are there are there times where you make more of an effort, or you know you're going to make time? For the making of the challah, because yes, it is. It does take up time. I I will give you that. But are there sometimes uh, you say you I know you're like going to put many women also um, made sure to make challah during uh, my late pregnancies, the late the late part of my pregnancies, or era Rosh Hashanah, right. and uh, at other times too. So there are certain times that it's just you got to do it. Right. You know, you, you know, you feel the wind in the air, and it's time. Right there. Um. Yeah. I also went through the oh, I'm going to have an easier pregnancy, if an easier delivery. If I make challah Arab Shabbos and whatever, it, it sort of never worked. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a guarantee. No. But you never know what would have been. <laughs> that, you know what? That's a really good way of looking at it. <laughs> um, I will, I will definitely take that. Hedy Abramowitz is an artist, former attorney and a blogger at Times of Israel. She has a piece called Breaking, oh, no pun intended. She has a piece called Breaking Bread, challah as a sign of the times. Um, it's also interesting to me that, um, you write, baking challah in Judaism is not in itself an act of religious observance. However, the commandment to take challah is one of three observances that you go through that are, that are specifically associated with women. Isn't it interesting that um, that that challah, the actual ritual, the making of the challah itself, is not a ritual observance? You know, I I don't know enough about the background of the of the mitzvah as as far as was this something that was associated only with the home or were people even in ancient days making a living at being bakers and therefore it couldn't be restricted to women. I, I really don't know. I don't have that, you know, depth of background. But um, no, it's but certainly I was... one of the three mitzvot associated with women. Right. No, I agree with you. But I was, I, it, to me, it's just it's so integral. It is so integral into so many of the things that we do, I mean, and into the Jewish home that you would almost consider it to be a religious observance. Um, and I, and maybe you're right. I, all I know is that the taking of the challah, the bracha, is the part that the woman, that the person, the woman is responsible to do, or whoever I guess who is making the challah. But it's um, it's associated with women, women in the home, and I guess in an extension of that, the creation, the woman has the influence. So much of the home life comes from the woman. So. Um, 
I, I guess that's why it is the way it is. <laughs> there is so much, I agree with you, and there is so much about challah making um, that I've noticed in the last number of years that has almost become a trend. Um, I don't know many people anymore, and I live in Long Island. I don't know that many people anymore who buy challahs. It is it has become a thing to make your own challah. It has become a um, you know whether you're part of a group of women who are uh, 40 women who for a skula, for a refua for somebody, or for somebody to get married, you know, have a particular name in mind, or whatever it is, or people, women getting together as groups and saying, oh, uh, this person needs, um, you know, special tefillot, can we get 40 women together? It has become um, a movement, so to speak, situated around challah. Um, I actually had personal experience with that this year. My family was the beneficiary of uh, such groups of 40 women who um, de- dedicated themselves to uh, specific prayers. And um, I have to say that in the midst of the uh, events surrounding that need as in my family, um, I didn't feel myself able to participate personally. But it was very, very comforting and powerful to know that so many women were making that effort. So um, I've, I've seen it from the other side, you know, so uh, I can relate to that very much. That's really very interesting. It's funny because as a, um, as a person who participates in, in these weekly groups, and, and I, I participate in it simply by receiving an email. I'm not, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not the person behind it. I'm just asked, you know, because I'm, I'm doing it anyway, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. But that I've always wondered whether or not even the family knows. I guess it depends on it depends on the situation. But it's... I, in my case, I did know, but it was um, it was uh, not within my ability at that time to uh, participate. So it was, uh, but still extremely heartwarming and extremely, you know, very uh, personal and very appreciated but um you know there's there's uh, everybody has to know their time absolutely when you can do it it's a wonderful thing yeah no i agree with you can i ask you with only a minute or two left can i ask you a question about the round challahs the ones that are braided but are like aren't they gorgeous they're unbelievable first of all i want you to know that when i first saw this picture i'm like oh my god i'm hungry and i (laughs) i don't think i was really hungry but i'm looking at the picture now going this is ridiculous and not only is it a beautiful photograph call a kavod to you but those challahs are perfect what? They're just beautiful, yeah. What are those? They're right hal- in the middle of the main drag of Machane Yehuda, and they sell them all the time. And if they're not that shape, it's the same delicious dough. And it's in the more traditional long shape. There, it's. I think it's the Pe'er Bakery. I'll right. give them a little plug. Right. It is. It seems to be the Pe'er Chalot. And just is there something? That's, that's what we normally use in our house. Because really? I go, I'm not such an active baker myself. <laughs> but but their their challahs are fantastic. But what is the significance of that? That the round shape? Yeah, I mean it's not That's the round the shape. shape that we that are usually associated with holiday times. See, but that's not uh, the one we use. That's not the one like when I buy a round challah or I make a round challah in New York. That's not what it looks like. It's not braided and then connected all together. It's just there one are a single lot rope. Of different um, traditions as far as braiding goes. Very often a uh, multiple of three, sometimes twelve different. Um, Lines of, of challah are twisted together. Um, there's, uh, I don't know, Chabad has a whole, uh, you know, explanation of what all the different significances are. Um, but uh, it's not, it's not, a, you know, very often you see um, braided challahs in long shapes and sometimes even um, the shape of a key as opening, as opening a gate or other, other shapes specific to specific holidays. Well, I have never seen this one, the braid and then the connecting of the two ends together so that the braid firm forms one circle. When I saw this, I, was, I, I had never seen this before, and I've spent a lot of time in Machan Yehuda, but I guess I was too busy eating fish and chips to really <laughs> to really notice the challahs. There's a lot to see. It's, it's always changing also. That's the amazing thing. Isn't Machan Yehuda amazing? Amazing. It is. It is. It is for all the senses. It really is. Anyway, Hedy Abramowitz, blogger, writer, artist, former attorney, and wonderful personality. You can find her piece, Breaking Bad, Chal as a Sign of the Times on the Times of Israel. It was dated January 7th. And um, I'm excited to have somebody on from the Jewish Quarter. I hope you'll come back on soon. Happily. Nice to meet you, Miriam. You too, Hedy. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. 
I don't remember if I've ever had four guests on in one show, but I had to make sure to get Joseph Gitler on this week, particularly because the awardees of the Nefesh Benefesh inaugural Bonetzion Prize have just been announced, and Joseph Gitler, founder and chairman of Leket Israel, is the recipient of the community and nonprofit Nefesh Benefesh Bonetzion Prize. He joins us. He joins us on the phone right now. Hello, Joseph. Hello, everyone. Great to be on. <laughs> Mazal Tov to you. Thank you. It's really a great honor and a privilege. I, I can I, I I was so excited when I received the email that you guys had won and we've had Leckett on before. You are a national food bank <clears throat> excuse me, a national food bank that has made a profound impact on the state of Israel. You collect food. Uh, that was otherwise going to be discarded either by farmers or manufacturers and caterers, and you distribute them to the needy, and you have provi- you provide food, like it provides food for 140,000 people plus on a weekly basis. So, Kolaka, vote to you. For this, you receive $10,000, correct? Uh, we do. Yeah, I didn't know that, but that's you know, a nice bonus. <laughs> am I am I correct on that? I think I am correct. You are that. correct. Yes. Oh, okay, the good. Honorees are getting a $10,000 reward. Yeah, it's fantastic. Nice. What and I can imagine, like any other profit, ten thousand uh, dollars will definitely go a long way. It will, yeah. Well, unfortunately, will be spent really quickly. Doesn't go as it doesn't go as far as it did when we started ten years ago. Well, we've just grown tremendously uh, over the years. Tell me what kind of improvements this ten thousand dollars is going to go towards. Well, I imagine our most impactful project over the past year has actually been the growth of our nighttime food collection, food rescue. It's actually called the David A. Cohen Food Rescue Program. A gentleman gave a large donation this year, and the program has been renamed after him. And we have increased that project from about 600,000 meals in 2012 to over a million meals in 2013, and with almost no additional cost. So a little bit of tweaking and a little bit of extra money, um, primarily to find another employee will help us rest will help us find new food sources we'll get that project up i bet even to a million and a half meals within the next year or two do you find your job getting any easier well personally i think my job is easier because we have an outstanding staff who uh who do such a good job that the day-to-day grunt work of running a large organization doesn't fall on my shoulders as much as it used to. Okay, so then um, it was so that it wasn't an uh, it was an unfair or poorly worded question. No, it was, and I, I know. Where, <laughs> I, let, let me let, let me try to rephrase it for you. Thank you. I took it personally, but but look, I think in the work Leckett does, I would say it does get easier year in year out as we get better known with help like people like yourself and others in Israel, whether it be in the press or philanthropists or the general public. If you're a uh, an efficient and honest charity doing a good job in your field. As you get better known, more and more people come along for the ride. And so just the amount of donors, the amount of donations, whether it be food or financial, flow in. We still work hard, but I think we're pretty confident that if we do that hard work, that we're going to be able to achieve um, what we want to and what we need to. Yeah. So... I don't find it. I mean, it's troubling to me that, it, that, the, that the problem hasn't disappeared, which is what we all want. But from a workflow, I'm, I'm actually I'm pretty comfortable. You may have had our, if our CEO was on, he might say you're out of your mind. <laughs> okay, but that's the way I feel. Is there is there less of a need for Leckett, or your need for the, over the last ten years has been steady? So it's an interesting question. The statistics coming out over the past year. Talk about a slight improvement in the numbers of poor in Israel. However, if the numbers are true that the National Insurance Institute talks about, if 25% of the population living below the poverty line, which I take those with a grain of salt, even so, let's say we took that 25% number and brought it down to 10%, that would still mean over 800,000 Israelis Mm. are in need. So as much great work as Leckett's doing and all our partner organizations are doing and other wonderful people throughout the world helping those who are poor in Israel, it's never enough. So even if the problem has gotten smaller, it doesn't make a difference for us because as much as we're doing, it's never enough. 
hope that was no, that's a great answer. The, there's a there's a feeling here in the U.S. that things are easing a little bit slightly, that the economy is, you know, slowly improving, and 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 I've heard from a number of different people that they just feel that the a little bit of the tension is off. Do you feel the same? Yeah. Well, Israel sort of sidestepped uh, the recession that's taking place in the states. Israel's been had a strong economy throughout the, the last ten years, despite the intifada. Despite the wars, despite the high-tech bust, Israel's gotten through it pretty, pretty well. What's happened and, and the, the scourge that we're dealing with today, and what people talk about in Israel, is really the, the gaps, the wage gaps, and the difference between living in a Western country uh, with prices similar, if not more expensive, than the U.S. in many realms, but making it on a salary whose right. average is far less than the average American salary. So if the average American salary is thirty-five or $38,000, something like that, the average salary in Israel is about $24,000. Okay? And so that's really where the trouble lies today, and where Lekin is trying to put its focus. We really want to help what we call the working poor. To us, they are the people who, need, who deserve the most help. They're trying to make it through life. They're trying to feed their families. And they're just struggling to do it despite all their good intentions. And we can only help them with the little bits of food that we give them, which can hopefully keep them above that, you know, above that line. But the real difference needs to be made by employers, by the government, perhaps by increasing the minimum wage. But again, I'm not an expert on those things. I just, <laughs> I just feed people. But we, we, need, we need people earning reasonable livings. No one who works should have to be a client to like it. Frankly, it's, it's embarrassing, whether it be in Israel or in the U.S. Right. That's just, that's an embarrassment. Excellent point. Excellent point. Joseph Gittler, the founder and chairman of Leket Israel, is on with, with us right now. You can find them, by the way, at leket.org.il. You know, Joseph, you are in unbelievable company in terms of other recipients of this 2014 Nefesh Benefesh Bonetzion Prize. Uh, Rabbanit Malkabina, yeah. the founder and chancellor of Matan, she won for the education section. Um, Yosef Abramowitz, CEO and, and co-founder of Energia, global, global capital, and co-founder of the Arava Power Company under entrepreneurship and technology. I mean, I could read all of the, all of the recipients, but this is one, this is one amazing group you are a part of. Yeah, well, um, being part of the group is a big honor, and when you look at who the judges were, uh, it's also a big honor because the judges were really some of the great leaders. In Israel, and I have to tell you, I don't know, you know, who else was nominated for the award, which I received, okay? But I've gotten to know over the years many of the leaders of other wonderful charities, many of which were started by other Anglo-Saxon in Israel. For example, Israel Philon Association, which was provided, started by Professor Jaffe, or Milabev, which is another an Alzheimer's organization, or the Kobe Mandel Foundation, mm. many great organizations um, in Israel were founded by Anglo-Saxons. Actually, it points to where we come from, the education that we got so, to receive this. Now, I'm hoping maybe none of those people are nominated because all of them uh, <laughs> are older. And, you know, I, when, I, when, 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 when I was told that I was being nominated, I said, I said there are people who've been, you know, like it's 10 years old, there are people who've had charities around for, you know, take the Israel Free Law Association, been around for 40 years. It's done 40 years of, of, of great work. You know, but, you know, I, we had great nominee and we had great, uh, the reference letters that were written. I didn't see them, but I was told by a little birdie <laughs> that the reference letters were outstanding and written by people who are really committed and care about uh, me and care about Lekhead. And it's great. You know, I don't need the accolades, uh, but any accolades which help let it further its mission uh, are worthwhile. So that's the best part of getting this prize. Well, that's a great answer. With about a minute left, Joseph, tell me, where do you expect us to be, see you guys, to see Let it in the next 10 years? And, yes, I know, every organization like you, like you wants to be put out of business. That should... Oh, well, we'd like to be put out of business, but I'll flip it a little bit because we'd like to be put out of business on the poverty side. Okay. But on the giving side, I, you know, as, as we've been in the 10 years, I've seen a lot of food companies who've learned from us how to be more efficient, how to waste less food. But overall, that's in the minority. And food, there's a, there is no cultural taboo today to wasting food. That taboo, you know, sort of has disappeared. 
And so there's what we need to, to continue to work on. If the poor disappear and there's still all this food waste, then we're really going to have a problem because what are we going to do with this food? Mm. So I, I, today, when there, is, when there is still so much poverty, you know, we sort of welcome the food waste as long as we're able to get it and get it at a very low cost. It makes a lot of sense to do it. But I wish, and we all wish for the day, when we have nothing to do with that food, maybe by then, you know, we'll have quiet in the Middle East. We can give it to some of our <laughs> cousins around the corner. Well, that would be a nice dream, right? That's, Unlikely as it sounds. Well, we can all dream, my friend. We can all dream. You know, well, you know uh, today being the day that, uh, you know, one of Israel's great leaders, uh, Ariel Sharon, who gave his, right. you know, life, really everything in his life to the state of Israel, and at the end of his life, you know, he he had a, uh, whether we agreed with his policies or not, he had the same dream we all do, which is to have peace. So, I mean, you know, Leket in its own way is, is hopefully bringing peace to the people in Israel, those who are hungry, keeping them calm and satiated. And, and you can't, you know, you can't live your life well, and you can't be uh, a plus to society if you're thinking about your belly all the time. So, you know, we wish that... Uh, on a day like today, that all those dreams come true for those who need it. Well, Joseph Gittler, Kolakavo to you, Mazal Tov to everyone at Leket. It's leket.org.il. I look forward to seeing you guys soon. I have a uh, trip planned, and please, God, we'll get together at the end of February. I hope so. Thanks, Miriam. Maz- As always, for the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. Mazal Tov. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Miriam L. Wallach. Thank you for making us part of your day. Full afternoon to programming right after That's Life. Nachum Siegel is already in the studio. Live lunch starts with the brunch, ends with lunch. 11 to 1, followed by an all-new stunt show hosted this week by Mayor Fertig. And then at 2 p.m., Throwback Thursdays, we encore JM and the AM from years past. You don't want to miss it. Everyone seems to love that segment. Buy the book, hosted by Nahum, the encore, and then Michael Fragan with Spin Class at 6 p.m., Charlie Bernhardt at 7, wrapping up the lineup. Tune in all day long. Join Nahum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 as he hosts JM in the AM live here on the stream, NahumSiegel.com, JamInTheAM.org. 7.40, the Nahum and Malcolm uh, weekly update. Don't miss that. There's always something going on, and obviously there's plenty of Ariel Sharon talk and memorial to go around. Of course, Naomi, table for two tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. My thanks to everyone at Gourmet Glot, Abel's and Hyman, Hode Golan, Royal Wines, and, of course, ZK and Video Maven, everybody who got it done last week. I thank everyone. Uh, last week was a phenomenal show. And to Seth, Shlomo, and, of course, Jay, you guys are seriously part of this team at this point. You are part of this family. We are happy to have you aboard. An updated 2014 schedule is on our website, nachomsegel.com. That's where you can find it. Don't miss it. Make sure to check everything out there. My thanks to ZK for joining me here today. I leave you with my own little throwback Thursday. Uh, we've been going with emails back and forth as to what we want to hear for the Mora Shaw concert. I'll speak to uh, I'll speak to that for a moment. So Klal Yisrael by Miami Boys Choir. That is definitely off the back wall. That is my throwback Thursday movement. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. A foreign land sits in Davin's an old man. You're amazed at his life of simplicity. How his words reach you with sensitivity, and your eyes recognize as never before that the dream that he prays for.